0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
2: Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics sharing puzzling tales from the past, and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms.
1: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
3: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
2: Hey, thanks to everybody that has participated so far in our Get Your Friends Into the Box contest. Um, Still a couple of weeks left for you to enter, and uh, the prize is a pretty cool one.
1: Unless you hate ad-free episodes and getting episodes early and... Zooming with us and monthly zoom, you know, in that case. Yeah, it's terrible.
2: The uh, grand prize. Actually, we're giving away three subscriptions, one year subscriptions to the inner circle of freaks. On Patreon, we had a great Zoom meeting with them. uh, Was it last Sunday? Yeah. We had people from Australia, people from New Zealand, uh, UK. We got
1: to meet some pets. I loved it. So you can get your friends in the box. There are many ways to enter to win. The first thing you've got to do is refer your friends, and then you've got opportunities to get bonus points too.
2: And just by referring a friend, you get five entries.
1: Go to theboxofoddities.com or follow the link on any of our social media.
2: Or The link that I will put in the description of this episode.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Get your friends into the box and help us grow the box of oddities well into 2024. You know, I was thinking the other night about a conversation that we had. You and I really enjoy finding out where everyday sayings come from, Mm -hmm. the history of of cliches like the whole nine yards or right. whatever. I came across an old photo of the founding fathers of the United States of America and their big, their, their wigs. And it reminded me of the discussion we had about how during this time, the bigger the wig you had, the more status you had in society. Uh-huh. And, and that's where the term big, big wig, wig comes from. But how the hell did that become a fashion trend? <laughs> Powdered wigs. Let's talk a little bit about the golden days of uh, American big wigs, and I'm not just talking about their political clout. Uh, the founding fathers stepping out in some serious colonial swag. Uh, we're talking uh, knee-high stockings. Yes, I want to bring those back. Please do. Slick silk long coats tailored to a t, mm. and the, of course, piece de resistance, the wig. And nowadays you'd probably only see this get up at a costume party, but back then this was the height of fashion for society's creme de la creme. And this would have been the 1600s into the early 1800s. But wigs weren't just a fashion statement. Uh, They've been around for a long time. In fact, uh, it goes back to ancient Greeks and Romans. But in the 1600s, when Whigs had their major comeback movement, uh, it was all due to King Louis XIV of France. Okay. He was the original influencer of the time. (laughs) Louis was always the life of the party. And before he was known as the Sun King, he was the, quote, flowing locks prince. He had beautiful hair, uh-huh. and he identified with his hair. But even kings can't escape father time, and uh, Louis's hairline started to uh, beat a strategic retreat. Uh, he turned to wigs. And we're not talking about just off-the-rack wigs. No, of course not. These were custom-made masterpieces. The result of a royal squad of wig makers, and that's what they called them, wig maker squads. I don't know. I just threw that in there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wig makers and barbers, they would make up the squad. Uh, They would work their magic. And Louis made wigs the must-have accessory for the well-heeled and well-to-do person who wanted to be perceived as upper class.
1: Well-heeled is another Great example of a phrase that is interesting. Do
2: you know the origin of that?
1: I assume it comes from Louis the Fourteenth and
2: <laughs> his nice heels. Yeah, he had beautiful heels. Now, this sparked a fashion trend that sailed across the ocean and landed right on the heads of the American Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big deal. If you wanted to be perceived as somebody with some stature, you had to have a wig. They were kind of like... The designer handbags of the 1700s. By the time the 18th century rolled around, a wig was more than just a bunch of hair on your head. It was like the ultimate status update. Wearing a fancy wig was like saying, look at me, I've got coin, uh, without actually saying those words. Um, It was about fashion, but it was also about flashing your VIP pass to to society. It was like a backstage pass in many ways. Now, as I mentioned before, the more money you had, the bigger the wigs, and that's why big wigs became a term. And the wig pecking order was very real. The big dogs, the ones who were rolling in the dough, they had uh, wigs that were made out of human hair. We're talking about top shelf stuff, the kind that would make you do a double take because it looked like they were just having a really good hair day every day. Uh, These wigs were the hot ticket items at the time. It said we've made it in the colonial streets, but not everyone in in the olden days could afford that type of a wig. The human hair wig was very expensive. Sure, But that didn't stop the fashion-forward early colonial folks on a budget. Uh, They still wanted to rock the wig. They would go with horsehair wigs. Okay. This was kind of the the middle-of-the-road option, kind of like a standard sedan, (laughs) four-door. It's not the... The shiny sports car better get you where you need to go. Then they had real budget-friendly versions made from goat hair or yak hair. And they certainly weren't the flashiest on the block. And you could probably tell they didn't come from somebody's head, but it did the trick. They, the wig said, I want to be with the trend, but I got to pay my rent.
1: Do you think that there were like exotic hair wigs? So like,
2: Uh, like from unusual animals, like monkeys, like alligator skin wigs. No, I don't think the no. trend had enough time to evolve that far mm, to too bad. take reptilian creatures into, uh, into <laughs> account. The whole hierarchy, or her- hierarchy, hierarchy, if you will, uh, painted a picture of, of who had cash and who was just trying to get by. Um, it was more than just fashion, though. It was a cultural code book. Wearing a wig was how you showed your spot on the social ladder, but it was so much more than that. Society was going through a bit of a health crisis during these
1: years—a
2: mm-hmm. syphilis outbreak. That's not glamorous. It was spreading quickly too, and and it came with some very nasty side effects, like sores and rashes, and clumps of your hair falling
0: out.
1: Aha! Uh-huh.
2: Now think about that for a moment.
1: I you don't think I'd like to. You have pegged
2: your social status to your hair. Mm. And now it looks like you're not only going bald, but you're losing clumps of hair and people know why. So wigs to the rescue. Right. And the royals weren't immune to this. Take King Charles II, for example. He was King Louis XIV's cousin. That guy was the talk of the town and not just for his kingly duties, he started losing his hair due to syphilis. Chock-a-block with syphilis? Just chock-a-block with syphilis. And, but he he didn't just sit around. He, he jumped on the wig bandwagon. Wigs became more than just a fashion statement at this point. It was a discreet way to keep your crown looking, well, kingly, even when nature was telling you otherwise. But there was even more to the wig craze than just looking fly and hiding your hair loss. Uh, back then, people, well, they had a different problem as well as syphilis, and that would be lice. Right. It was... A nonstop lice party in those days. And those little critters were more than just an itchy nuisance. They spread disease like typhus. So you didn't want these things. Mm. I remember reading an article or a story about the Civil War, about the lice would be so bad that they would have to boil their clothing. Ooh. And they would boil it in the same pot that they would then cook their food in.
1: I'm sure they rinsed it out first. Well, well
2: let's hope so. Once again, the wig to the rescue. To fit your wig properly, you had to shave your head anyway, so that was a, a good thing. Oh, nice! Got rid of the of the uh, of the fleas and yep. the lice.
1: But if your wig was made of human hair, did the lice get confused and hang out anyway?
2: Yeah, that was a problem. Oh, okay. It was with syphilis making the rounds and lice making themselves at home in anybody's heads. Wigs were about to become more than social status, but the problem was, as you just mentioned. In the higher-end wigs that used human hair, uh, yeah, sure, it hid the syphilis, but it was much more difficult to rid them of uh, lice or fleas or any type of vermin.
1: Then you've got to boil your wig.
2: And who has time for that? Mm. For your everyday guy or or gal, um, if you had a wig, you probably only just had one, Mm. one wig and you didn't have time to boil it. So you've got one, okay? If you're a king, you've got a bunch of them. You can have them cleaned and stuff. But if you were just a regular guy on the street, you wore your wig day in and day out. Mm. These lower end hair pieces were styled, what were held together with animal fats. Yeah, I know it sounds gross, but trust me, it it's was gross. really, really gross. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those fats didn't stay fresh for very long, and pretty soon your head smelled like like an outbuilding at a slaughterhouse.
1: It's like filling your
2: hat with suet. I'm surprised suet hats weren't a fashion craze back then. These things soaked up dirt and sweat like nobody's business. Then of course the animal fat started to go bad, Mm. and yeah, that's where the powder came in.
1: Right, it's like dry shampoo. It is,
2: it's kind of like a 1600s version of dry shampoo. He tossed some powder on that smelly, greasy goat's hair, and uh, you're ready to hit the town. Or at least you could pretend you weren't carrying a roadkill on your head. It was less about looking good and more about not smelling like runoff from a meat processing facility.
1: Right. I one time ran out of dry shampoo, and so I used a little cocoa powder. I smelled amazing all day, but my scalp looked weird.
2: Was it a warm day, and as the day progressed, you started to smell like freshly baked brownies? <laughs> because I'm all in on that one. So wig makers whipped up this powder mix. It was kind of a cleaning hack. It consisted of a bunch of things, flour to bulk it up, chalk, they gave it that matte finish and a special type of clay that would soak up the grease and the sure. sweat. Yeah. And because no one wanted to smell like last week's leftovers, they chucked in some you know, like lavender and stuff like that. Yeah. If you were really fancy, you might even go for cinnamon or amber. Ooh. It was like a 18th century version of an essential oil diffuser, but you wore it on your head and it looked like roadkill. And if you were lucky enough to have a white wig, this powder was the ultimate highlighter. It really made the wig pop and that became a fashion thing too. Is the brighter and 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 more white the wig was, the higher status. Of course. You might be wondering what happened to the wig craze. Yeah. Why aren't we still sporting powdered wigs? on our modern commutes. Well, like all great fashion trends, wigs had their sundown as well.
1: Is it because it's hard to get into a a sedan with a wig on?
2: (laughs) No, actually, that's why they invented the sunroof. Ah. As we rolled into the 19th century, wigs started to lose their fashion appeal. It was a mix of changing tastes and practicality, Here in the U.S., we were taking our cues, our fashion cues, and still to this day, to a large degree, from France. And at the time, the French Revolution was shaking things up. It was not so cool to flaunt your wealth on your head yeah. while everyone else was fighting for equality. Let them eat cake. And then there was the whole hygiene revolution as the 19th century moved along. People started getting into the idea of bathing
1: more regularly. Right. Not putting animal fat on their scalp.
2: And wandering around in the heat for weeks.
1: Mm. So that
2: kind of ruined uh, the selling point for wigs because um, hiding baldness due to syphilis and keeping lice away was less of a thing. And wigs, were, they were hard to take care of. In a world moving toward practicality, spending hours on your hairpiece just wasn't on the top of everyone's list. Yeah. By the time the Victorian era hit, wigs were pretty much reserved for the courtroom. And they still are in some places. Right. Uh, in uh, in Europe, England, notably, the everyday wig wearing was left in the dust of history as people embraced the natural hair and the simplicity and the better smell that came with it. <laughs> and so that's the tale of the rise and fall of the wig empire. I got my info from Ripley's, believe it or not, Wikipedia, the BBC, and Smithsonian.
1: That was really fun.
2: So it just kind of evolved. Yeah.
1: And it makes sense. So much of fashion, especially back in the day, was a part of practicality and necessity. And when a... a, member of royalty would do anything right people would follow i yes. remember you talking about people blacking out their teeth because yes. only the very wealthy could afford sugar that would rot teeth yes that's exactly oil. right
2: yeah <laughs> queen elizabeth the during elizabethan times she was the only person that could get a lot of sugar mm. on the regular and her teeth fell out and so we yeah, have people like, well, I don't want to knock my teeth out. I'll just black them with soot.
1: Won't that look nice? Off to the globe we go.
2: It's almost opening curtain.
1: Where are my opal fruits?
0: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. And
3: now, that thing in the middle.
2: Here's something to bear in mind next time you're walking through New York City. The walk buttons at an intersection do not actually trigger a walk light. The light changes are controlled by computers. And the buttons are simply placebos for pedestrians.
1: I shared a post about some of the deadly but incredibly cute animals that we talked about a few weeks ago or recently. I don't remember. And uh, Valerie commented, I know they could kill me, but I still want a pet.
2: That's the danger. That's where they get you. Yep. Mary sends us this. Um, I really enjoyed the story about the $10,000 worth of pennies that was found in the basement crawl space Me too I've been following this story since it first appeared on the news As a thrifter I browse the classified ads frequently and I've noticed that recently someone not far from me has started trying to barter more than a a few brand new kilos of copper It makes me wonder where the copper came from mm. The person trying to get rid of the copper wants to trade it for gold or silver, which is interesting, but fun fact, copper is not a precious metal. The only real value is industrial purpose, unless it's in the form of a rare coin. I'm definitely going to pay attention and see if any rare pennies go up to auction in the near future. Take care, Mary. Probably the freshly minted um, kilos of copper came from a town where a lot of people's plumbing is missing.
1: When I shared the the post about that new episode, A Surprise in the Crawl Space, Ryan commented, is this a double entendre, kind of like communists in the gazebo? <laughs> <laughs> it, it does sort
2: of sound like a euphemism,
3: does yep.
1: it not? Yep.
3: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
1: Today we're going to talk about Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls. This topic has been suggested by several people, uh, most recently Carissa and Steph, and I just want to thank you both because it's something that I've been wanting to do for a while and I kept kind of circling back to it because I wanted to do it right and sometimes that's hard and Mm. it involves a lot of reading and (laughs) so much. So much research. Robert's worth talking about. Robert Smalls was born uh, in April of 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. Of course, this is during the times of slavery and racial oppression. And Beaufort was known for its bustling coastal port and maritime activities. Being deeply involved in the slave economy, uh, Smalls' life was shaped by the harsh realities of this environment. Robert was separated from his mother at a young age and sent to work first at a hotel and then became a street lamp lighter. This early introduction to labor exposed him to the stark inequalities and the systemic oppression faced by enslaved people. As Smalls grew older, his curiosity and ambition led him to seek opportunities in the plentiful maritime work of Beaufort, where he would spend much of his time observing the bustling shipbuilding and navigation along the coast.
2: So he grew up in this environment. This is, this is what he knows. Yes.
1: And his fascination with the maritime world eventually led him to work as a dock worker and laborer in Charleston, where he was hired to work for different employees. And it was during this time that he gained valuable firsthand knowledge of ships, their operations, and the waterways along the South Carolina coast. During this time, he met Hannah Jones. They fell in love and were married, though Hannah, who already had children, was also enslaved so their marriage was not legally recognized Mm. by South Carolina. The CSS planter was primarily used for logistical purposes, delivering supplies and troops, and Smalls was hired to work on board as a deckhand, providing him with a unique opportunity to gain familiarity with the ship's operations and navigation, he tried to buy his family's freedom, but he was unable to come up with the $800. That today would be over $25,000. But Robert had a plan. Small's knowledge of the planter's inner workings became instrumental in his daring attempt to escape from slavery. Now with the Civil War in full swing, Robert Smalls devised a daring operation to seize control of the USS Planter and sail it to freedom. He was a trusted member of the crew, obviously, and he had access to the ship's navigational charts, codes, and signals. he studied intensely the routines of the officers and crew. He learned their habits and routines, and he gained knowledge of the Confederate Navy's recognition of signals, which would prove vital in his attempt to navigate past Confederate checkpoints. Now, his plan to sail away was pretty simple, but there were multiple obstacles.
2: Well, I would imagine not just getting past Confederate checkpoints, but once you get into Union waters... You're
1: a Confederate ship. Right. And are they going to blow you out of the water? Yeah. But before all that, you have to convince the other crew members that this was a plan that they should be part of. Okay. Knowing the repercussions, should they be caught, would likely include being killed. It was it was a task all on its own. He had to convince them first that it was possible and that they wanted to be a part of it. He also had to figure out when would be the best time. Now, luckily, the three white officers of the CSS planter had been breaking the rules and leaving the ship at night to go home to their families.
2: Well, that makes things easier.
1: It does. But then they'd have to organize picking up their families, waiting on a nearby ship, without attracting attention and scoodle through the heavily guarded harbor undetected.
2: So they're taking their families, too. Yeah, they are. That's great.
1: So this is not just Robert Smalls. This is Robert Smalls and every person, also a crew member on that ship. Also, every crew person's families. (laughs) They all had to be okay with this.
2: Mm. Do we know how many people total? I don't. But it was a full crew and their families. Yes. Wow.
1: And it was decided that they would embark on their incredibly risky endeavor on the night of May 13th, 1862. Now, once again, the three white officers abandoned their duties, believing that the crew would never dare such an endeavor. Small's knowledge of the harbor and the ship's navigational systems allowed him to slip past Confederate defenses. Their daring escape took them through several checkpoints, until they reached the Union blockade. Now, upon this moment, Smalls raised a white flag made from a sheet and surrendered the CSS planter to the the Union Navy. His actions not only secured freedom for himself, his crew, and their families, but delivered a valuable Confederate vessel to Union forces. I'll bet they were glad to see him. Give me that ship. Small's courageous and audacious escape aboard the CSS planter garnered widespread attention and admiration. His incredible escape story captivated the entire nation, and it played a significant role in President Abraham Lincoln's decision to allow free African-Americans to join the Union military. Thanks to his bravery, Congress recognized his actions by awarding him a substantial $1,500 cash prize.
2: Wow. $1,500 back then.
1: And inspired by his heroics, Smalls was sent on a speaking tour, sharing his remarkable tale and actively recruiting African Americans to enlist in the Union Army. Now, in 1863, something truly remarkable happened. Robert Smalls, a man of extraordinary courage, found himself piloting the ironclad USS Keokuk, during the Union's intense bombardment of Fort Sumter. During the relentless barrage, Smalls fearlessly steered the vessel, maneuvering through the chaos of battle. Now the ship took numerous hits and eventually sank beneath the waves, but Smalls' bravery did not go unnoticed. In recognition of his remarkable valor, he was granted the incredible honor of commanding the USS Planter later that year. This appointment marked a historic moment. It made him the very first African-American captain in the U.S. Navy.
2: That's incredible.
1: Throughout the remainder of the war, Smalls skillfully balanced his responsibilities as a spokesperson and a now Union Navy captain. He commanded several ships, leading a total of 17 daring missions in and around Charleston, and his unwavering dedication and strategic expertise contributed significantly to the Union's efforts in the region. It was a turning point in his life, propelling him into the national spotlight and granting him and his family freedom.
2: And the families of all of the crew members. Of all of
1: the crew members. Robert Smalls stood as a symbol of resistance against slavery and an example of African-American bravery that was propelled into the collective noggins of the United States.
2: The U.S. collective noggin.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm. Following the war, Robert Smalls returned to South Carolina and became involved in politics He served in the South Carolina State Legislature and went on to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah, he did. From 1875 to 1887. He was the first African-American to be elected to Congress during the Reconstruction period. Of course, he remained committed to advancing the rights and opportunities for African-Americans. His accomplishments... And courageous actions during the Civil War make him such an important part in American history. And it really is a story that I think just needs to be told. That is a life well lived. I got my information from PBS, from Britannica, and from the National Park Service. Robert Smalls, incredible.
2: I loves me a good Civil War story. I know you do. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had heard a little bit about this, about a guy who had commandeered a, a Confederate ship and sailed it and surrendered it. But I, I had no idea of all of those details. And mm-hmm. he ends up a U.S. congressman.
1: Yeah, MBD.
2: Yeah, that's great. Guys, thanks for all your support. We love you guys, and uh, we appreciate you being here every week. Don't forget, there's a couple of weeks that you can still enter the uh, contest to win a one-year membership To The Order of Freaks, you can hang out with us on Zoom every month. You get ad-free episodes and bonus episodes and all kinds of cool stuff. Being a member of the inner circle, not just The Order of
1: Freaks, the inner circle. It's like our version of the Skull and Bones or that group of old people that hangs out in the convenience store eating donuts. That too.
2: Wouldn't it be cool if old people that hang out at convenience stores eating donuts had some sort of bizarre initiation uh, rights that they had to follow in order to join that group? <laughs> like like you're out on your fire machinery and somebody taps you on the shoulder? You've been tapped. <laughs> Anyway, get your friends into the box, tell people about The Box of Oddities, and you have a chance to win. I'll just put the link right in the description of this episode so it's easy for you to find, but you can find it on our website, theboxofoddities.com. And thank you so much. We will see you next time.
1: Until next time. Wait, you've already said that. Yeah, I did. Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: And fly it proudly you beautiful freak <laughs> and so let it
3: be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands therefore it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance we ask but one thing of you to provide a five star rating and a positive review true that is two things however tis merely a five star rating and a positive review Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.